Good morning. So today, um, as we did a couple weeks ago, we're going to take a break from the Sermons of John, and we're going to look at one of the Psalms. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 10 today, and just a little bit of a reminder, a refresher, if you remember a few weeks ago, Josh preached on Psalm 9, um, and if you remember in his opening, he mentioned that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are actually connected. Um, there's a few reasons for this. Uh, one of them is... They weren't really separated up until about the 16th, 17th century during the Reformation. Um, and before that, in the Septuagint, which was like the Greek uh, New Testament and Old Testament that the church would use in the early church, and even in the Hebrew Bibles, which was before that, these psalms are actually one psalm of David. But another reason for this that Josh mentioned is that Psalm 9 and 10 together form an acrostic, which just means that each section in the psalm uh, starts with a letter of the alphabet, and that begins in Psalm 9 and continues through Psalm 10. So for these reasons, um, these psalms traditionally, they actually go together. Um, they're one psalm of David. Uh, so why were they split? Why were they split in Psalms 9 and 10? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's begin by reading Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has it in his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, God. Arise, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his name. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Dear God, I praise you thank you for your word the opportunity to preach it to your church. I pray, God, that it would be not my word, but yours, that you would speak through me, and that as we look at the psalm of David, God, that you would help us to understand what the psalmist is writing about here, and that you would help us to learn, even in times of trial, even when things seem broken, that we can trust you and cast our struggles, our anxieties, and our burdens on you, Lord, and trust you. Because in Jesus' name, amen. So why was the psalm split from Psalm 9? Well, if you remember, again, Josh's sermon a few weeks ago about from Psalm 9, it was 
basically a song of praise where the, David was praising God for his justice, his righteousness, how he makes his enemies perish, and he's a stronghold for the oppressed. And so it was a very positive psalm, thanking God for who he is, his justice, his righteousness, and all that he's done for his people. Then when you get to Psalm 10, we kind of see a shift, a big change, right? Rather than the psalmist praising God, he says, where are you, God? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So, if these psalms are together, this seems to be one thought of David, so I don't think this is David just turning from praise to lament out of nowhere. I think he might be asking the question rhetorically for the readers and those who would sing these psalms. Yes, we can praise God for his righteousness and his justice, but what do we do when we take these truths of our faith and then we look at the world and we see how broken the world is, how do we reconcile that? Mm-hmm. And I think David is trying to teach us here how we do that. Um, I mean, even today, you can turn on the news for five minutes and you'll see just how bad things are in the world still today. Mm-hmm. That there's violence, there's wars, there's poverty, there's just all kinds of brokenness in the world. And it does seem like even today, as we'll look at in this text, that the wicked get away with prospering. And so either way, this question is being asked in the light of the truths of chapter 9 and begs the question, how do we reconcile our experience with our faith? And uh, church, I want to ask you, do we have this question ever? Where are you, God? What are you doing during our trials? When we're facing hard times, temptations, struggles, and difficult circumstances. Where are you, God? Why would you let this happen? Because that's the question being asked in verse 1. So as we look at this chapter, at the Psalms, I want to ask the question, what do we do when God seems far away? So, David asks this question in verse 1. Why are you far away, God? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Well, in verses 2 through 11, the next 10 verses we'll look at, we'll walk through, David lays out the reason why he would ask this question. He talks about the wicked and their prosperity, and ultimately the pride of the wicked. So we'll just walk through this section, um, looking at each verse and talking about how David talks about the wicked and why this should cause us and him to lament and cry out to God. So we'll see the pride and the prosperity of the wicked in verses 2 through 11. In verse 2, we see first and foremost that first thing he says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor and let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. So arrogance is having an exaggerated view of oneself. It's they think more highly of themselves than they ought to. They think they're more than they actually are, which is interestingly the exact opposite of how Christians are supposed to live. Paul in the New Testament, he calls us to think of others as more highly than ourselves, to be willing to put others before ourselves. But here we see the first thing we're told about the wicked is that they're arrogant, that they're putting themselves above others, even if it's they have no standing to do so. But they use their arrogance, their pride, their haughtiness to pursue the poor and to catch them in schemes and devices. Then we see in verse 3 that the wicked boast of their wicked desires in their soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So we see that the wicked is, again, there's this pride, this arrogance that they have these wicked, perverse, corrupt desires and rather than something to be ashamed of or seek repentance for, they boast in it. They, they lift it up and praise their wicked desires and flaunt their desires. We also read, then, the one greedy for gain curses and rounds to the Lord. Now, this 
Another way to interpret this, um, some have debated that curses can also be understood as blesses, that the one who has boasted in his wicked desires also blesses the greedy. They, they bless those who pursue selfish desires for themselves. But either way, either the greedy are blessed by the wicked, which is not a good thing, or the wicked, they curse God. And ultimately, they renounce the Lord. Now, they either do, they declare their abandonment, whether with words or just with their actions, with their selfish, sinful, and wicked desires and lifestyle. They renounce God. So we see that they're arrogant, they boast in their wickedness, they renounce God, and they're greedy. In verse 4, again, we read, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. So we see the wicked are prideful. They Again, they already think more of themselves than they ought to, but in their pride, they think they don't need God. They don't think they need to pursue him, to know him, to have a relationship with him. And ultimately, all of his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, this could be understood that they are actively saying there is no God, or just that God isn't even a thought in their mind, that they don't take the time to think about God in their lives. Now, if you, we won't turn there, I'll just read it, but a few songs over, what does David say about those who say there is no God? David says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14.1. So they think in their pride, they're rejecting God, they're doing something great, they think they don't need God, they're, they think they're able to accomplish all they want without him, but ultimately they're fools in their pride to reject God, to say there is no God, and turn from him. In verse 5, we see that the wicked prospers at all times. Now it's interesting that this word for prosperous here um, can also have this idea of bringing forth, and that bringing forth has to do with labor, with giving childbirth. And um, While a mother, generally, the pain they experience would be a good thing, right, ultimately to have the child, but I think here that this idea connects here that the wicked, they prosper, they bring forth their prosperity through pain and suffering, but it's not their pain, hmm. it's the pain of others that they hmm. bring forth their prosperity. And we'll see this as we read on, that they oppress the poor and crush them and destroy them. So here we get, in this verse 5, a little glimpse of hope. So far the wicked, they act as if there is no God, they, they do what they want, they think they can get away with it, but we read perhaps part of the reason they have this mindset is David says about God, your judgments are on high and out of his sight. So to the wicked, they're operating because they don't see what God is doing. They operate as if God is not acting, as if God does not exist. But here, there's a little bit of hope though. Just because they don't see it and because we don't see it doesn't mean God isn't acting. David here says God is acting. His judgments are there. They just can't see them. So we see hope that God, just because they say there's no God, just because they act as if there is no God, doesn't mean God isn't there and he isn't acting. And at the end of verse 5, we just read that. As for all of his foes, he puffs up them. Again, just this summary of this attitude of pride and arrogance. It's almost like this taunting and flaunting at those that they don't like or consider their foes, that they're not afraid, that they don't think they're going to face their consequences for their actions. And again, this is what we read in verse 6, as well as we continue through these verses. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Just again, this idea that they will never face someone or something that will make them stop, that will make them change. They don't think they'll ever pay consequences for their actions. They think they're going to get away with it. That they will do as they please and no one will say otherwise to them. 
So again, summarizing so far, the wicked, they're prideful and arrogant. They boast in their wickedness. They live as if there is no God. Verse 7 talks about the tongue of the wicked and the mouth. His mouth is filled with cursing, which is desiring and wishing ill on others. Deceit, which is lies and deception. And oppression. They use their language, their words, to oppress, to harm, and to keep others down. And then also under his tongue, which has this idea of being like poison hidden in his mouth under his tongue, is mischief, so troublemaking, and iniquity, so sinfulness, rejection of God. So the wicked, they use their tongue, they use their speech to harm others, to deceive, and to destroy. Hmm. And we see that they don't only harm with their tongue, but in verses 8 and 9, we see that they actually commit acts of violence. Hmm. We read, he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. And he lurks that he may seize the poor, and he seizes them, the poor, when he draws them into his net. <coughs> Here we are told that the wicked not only harm others with their words, but they do it with actual acts of violence. They murder the innocent, and they're like lions ambushing the poor and destroying them. So all of this leads to verse 10, the wicked's actions and their attitudes, that the helpless are crushed, they sink down, and fall by his might. So the wicked, they have some kind of power that they use to destroy, to harm, to oppress, and to lift themselves up at the, ex- at the expense of others. The helpless are destroyed. And ultimately, in the end, we see the wicked almost reflect what David o- opens Psalm 10 with. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face, and he will never see it. Hmm. just as David is feeling in verse 1 God why are you hiding where are you why do you seem far away we see the wicked feels the same way they say God won't see it he has forgotten and he is hidden God's not going to act so whether they actively believe in God and reject his sovereignty his lordship or if they just don't even think about God ultimately they operate and live as if God does not exist and as if God does not matter so again, if we had to summarize the wicked here in these 10 verses, they are prideful and arrogant. They see themselves as more than they are. They see themselves without the need for God. They act without thoughts of God as if he's not real, that all that they do is about themselves and about what makes them feel good and what they want to do and makes them feel better and without any desire or love for God or others. And they oppress and murder the poor through violence, and through their words. This is the wicked. And as we read in verse 10, that at times they accomplish these acts, that they seem to prosper. And so this causes us and David in verse 1 to say, why do you stand far away, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Now, we get an answer here at the end of this psalm, um, we'll look at in a second. But I want to ask, can we, even as Christians, have the same mindset that we see in verse 1, or even the mindset of the wicked in verse 11. Mm-hmm. Not saying that we're oppressing, committing acts of violence and pride, but can we live and act as if God is not there? Mm-hmm. There's a term, I don't know if you've heard it, called practical atheism, which even Christians can fall into. It's where you live your life, make your decisions as if God doesn't exist, as if he's not a factor in what you're doing and how you live your life. 
So you might come to church on Sundays and come to church, hear a good sermon, and go home and be encouraged by that. But what do you do with the rest of your week? Do you just go on and live life how you want to without thinking about what you heard or read in the Word, living a life for God? Or do you meditate on what we've learned? Do you study the Word and strive every day to live a holy life for God? Or, I think on the other end of the spectrum, do we, as verse 5 says, since we don't see God acting just as the wicked don't, because we don't always know how God is working in all of our circumstances, do we allow that to cause the despair, to think that God isn't acting, that we might be going through trials and suffering and circumstances that are difficult, and just end with the question, where are you, God? Why did you let this happen? And leave it there, and allow ourselves to become doubtful and despair, even bitter towards God because of the trials we're facing. I think this is a real danger, even for us as Christians, who don't reject God when it's hard to see how God is working in our trials, when it's hard to see that God is acting. Well, David models for us how we should respond in these situations in verses 12 through 18. So first, you see David models for us the example to pray. He says in verse 12, he calls on God to act. Yes, he had the question, verse 1, where are you, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why do the wicked prosper? But then, rather than just falling into despair, he says, God, act. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He brings this request to God. Yes, the wicked are prospering. The innocent are suffering. So God, act. Act on the behalf of your people. And then he asks the question in verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God? And say in his heart, you will not call to account. So he's asking this question rhetorically, right? Why does, he's saying, why do they think they can reject God and say, no one will call to account? So David's saying, they think God doesn't see, but he does see. And this is what we see in verse 14. David says, but you do see, for you know initial vexation. God does see. The wicked think God doesn't see. When they commit their sins, they think God isn't going to act. But here David tells us that God does see, hmm. and he will act. God is writing down notes, he says, hmm. for you note the mischief and the vexation. God is taking notes of what they're doing. And then he says he's doing that, so he may take it into your hands. God is recording, writing down what they're doing, and he's going to take it personally into his hands to deal with it himself. And then... In verse four, uh, yeah, in the second half of verse 14, David says, To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So here David says, You have been, have been the helper of the fatherless. David is drawn from past experiences that God has helped his people before. Hmm. We can trust him, even though we're suffering now and dealing with trials now, that God has been a helper before. He has been our Savior. He is our Savior. And he will be our Savior. So we can trust him. I think David is going from Psalm 9 to 10 with just remembering and praising God for all that he is. It's because that's what we need to do. We need to remind ourselves of who God is, that he is holy and righteous and just, and he is our Savior, and that he does care for us and loves us, and that we can trust him. Just because in the moment it seems like he's not present, he's not acting, doesn't mean he isn't, right? We already saw that in verse 5. And so David is reminding us to call out to God when we're facing trials, but to also remember who God is and what he has done. 
So when we're tempted to despair, we can look back at what God has done and be reminded that he has saved us before, he has helped us before, he has lifted us up and heard our prayers, and he will do it again because it's who he is. Hmm. And then verse 15, David calls for God to bring justice, to bring judgment against the wicked. He calls for God to break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Now, he might mean this literally, but also <laughs> the arm is a symbol of their power, of their strength, right? So we do see by their might in verse 10 that they did crush the poor, the helpless. So they do have some level of power that they were using to oppress and harm and abuse others. But David calls on God to break their arm, to break their power, to break the control that they have and to call his wickedness to account until you find none. David wants God to go through every wicked, sinful act that these people have committed and judge them for each one and bring, bring them to perfect justice. Now, church, justice won't always come in this life exactly the way we want it, hmm. but we have hope as Christians that we are saved in Christ he ascended to heaven and we're waiting for him to return and come again to make all things new, to create the new heavens and earth. But also, we read in Revelation chapter 20 that when he comes, God will judge the living and the dead. That all will be judged. And God in Christ is the judge who shall do perfect justice. And for us as Christians, we are sinners as well. But our justice was paid, our sin was paid for on the cross where justice was done. And if you're not here a Christian today, God's wrath is still on you. You are still in your sin. And the only way to escape God's wrath is to turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ alone. To believe that he lived the life that you couldn't and died in your place. And through his resurrection, you can have life by faith in him. So there is a day where God will bring about perfect justice for us. He may bring it now in this day through certain means, but even then, we know that Christ, our hope, will return and bring perfect justice for us in the end, when he returns. Then, as we turn to the last few verses, we see David praising God for who he is again. He first says in verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Just reminding us who God is, that he is king, that he rules, that even though the wicked think they get away with it, God rules all of the earth. This is his world, and he will bring them to account for what they have done. When we read even the next verse in encouragement, the nations perish from his land. Now in this context, David is probably talking about the promised land of Israel, where God gave them the land and removed their enemies from the land. But we also know that, like I just said, when Christ returns to this new heaven, new earth, the wicked will be punished forever, and it will be removed from the people of God. And we will enjoy eternity with God in the new heavens and new earth. Hmm. And in verse 17 and 18, again, David just reminds us who God is. He says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. David has confidence that God will hear their prayers. He will hear our prayers when we cry out to him. It's because he, it's who he is. He's a loving father who loves to stoop down, to bend his ear, to hear his children and answer their prayers. 
So, church, this is who God is. He reigns. He is king. He is a God who hears our prayers, who loves us. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, he tells us to cast our anxieties and our burdens onto God, to give these burdens to him, these trials that we're facing. And he says, why? Because God cares for us. Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. He wants you to bring these things to him and trust him with them. This is who God is. And so even when we don't see God acting, when we don't see him there in our circumstances and our trials, and when we're facing difficulty and we don't know what God's plan is, which we often don't, we can trust that God loves us. He is in control. He is sovereign. And he is working all things together for good for those who love him. And so we can come to him in prayer and lift these things up to him, cry out to him, to hmm. give him our struggles, our burdens, and trust that he will take them and he will answer our prayer. And ultimately, we see at the end of verse 18 that David's confidence is that God will deal with the problem here in chapter in Psalm 10. He says he will do justice, he will hear their prayers, he will strengthen their hearts, he says, so that the man of the earth, who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. There is a day, again, where God will bring justice. He will judge the wicked. And they think they're getting away with it now. But there is a day where God will return. He will judge them for their sin. He will do justice for his people. And those who, the wicked who hurt and abuse and commit violence, will strike terror no more. Hmm. They will be judged. And they will be sentenced forever. So we can trust God that he will bring justice. We can trust God in all circumstances. We can trust him because of who he is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just praise you. Thank you for your word again. I pray God would just help us um, in this broken world, in our broken lives, Lord God. Things are often difficult and hard. It's hard to see you working in all things. But Lord, we know from your word that you are working in all things. We know that you are in control of all things and that you love us and desire good for your children. So I pray, God, you just help us to trust you, to love you, to pray to you, and pray for each other in times of difficulty. And I pray that you just give us grace to, to exalt you and live for you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.